ever noticed that um, you, can, you can be in a worship service on a Sunday morning and you could be connecting with God in worship and then uh, you can hear a message from God's Word that just penetrates to your heart and just impacts your life and then um, you go home and you go through your routine and by Monday or Tuesday you don't even remember what the topic of the message was. Don't, don't nod your head because it will hurt my feelings, but <clears throat> I have a feeling that has happened to you. I preach these sermons and don't remember what they were by Wednesday, right? So I know this happens, um, and, uh, and so let me just ask you, if you can remember all the way back seven days ago to when you were here last, um, I told you that we're going to be starting a series in the book of Ephesians, and I gave you a homework assignment, and I said, go and read all of the book of Ephesians this week. So if you did that, raise your hand. All right, congratulations to the five of you. Um, you guys will receive $1,000 each for... No, that won't actually happen. Uh, but uh, I had this gut feeling that was going to happen, that I was going to ask you guys to read this, and you're going to go, yeah, that's a great idea. I should totally read that. I'll be ready by next week. I'll know the whole context. And then you would go home and not do it. So let's stand. And... Uh, for those of you who didn't read it, we're just going to, uh, I'm just going to read it to you, okay? So you could have done this at home or we could have done something else now, but I'm just going to read this to you, okay? We're going to start in Ephesians 1.1. Here it is. Paul, and you can stand for this, by the way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful to Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every... Okay, sit down. <laughs> sit down. I'm not going to make you do that. In fact, I, there's not a whole lot of point in me even jumping into this passage like that at all, because, well, think of it this way. Um, let's say that you go out to your mailbox tomorrow. I don't know how it is at, your, at where you live, but where we live, there's community mailbox banks, you know, that you don't, everybody doesn't have one in their house. There's like half a dozen here and you have to go. So, so just every now and then it gets mixed up and you grab the mail out of your box and you go home and you start to open. You're just opening your bill. Oh yeah, that's a bill. I know that. Oh yeah, there's another bill. I know that. Okay. And you're separating out and you open up this envelope and it's a letter and you start reading it and, and you know, it's a letter from... Aunt Bob, Uncle Bob and Aunt Eula, and you're like, uh, and so they're telling you all about, you know, they took the dog in for surgery, and their kid's sick, and, and you're reading this, and you're going, I don't even have an Uncle Bob. And they, so you take, the, you take the envelope, and you turn it, and you realize it's addressed to your neighbor, and you got your neighbor's mail, right? So you're reading this letter that is addressed to your neighbor, and it's talking about all this wonderful stuff, but it's not wonderful to you. That doesn't mean anything to you. You're like, I don't even know who these people are. I don't understand what questions are being answered here or what the context of this is. And so you can just sort of get lost in it that way. And, and you might get a thing here or there and you might notice uh, something and go, oh, that's really interesting. But the truth of the matter is if you're reading somebody else's mail and you don't understand what it's about, it's not going to give you anything. You're not going to get any benefit from that. And I, I say that because... What, what I just did this morning, when I just opened to chapter 1, verse 1, and start reading, that's what we tend to do with the Bible. And sometimes we're even a little more cavalier. We sort of do this thing, you know, and this is my verse for today. He sinks a shaft afar from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro from men. That is God's word for me today from Job chapter 28, right? And you're like... No wonder the Bible doesn't make sense to me. It's like not penetrating my heart. And, and part of the reason is we're sort of reading somebody else's mail. Even when we go to some of these New Testament letters and open them up, if we don't understand some things about who wrote this and why was it written, um, what was going on among the people that it was written to, who are these people anyway, and, and what was happening in their lives, there are questions being answered in this. What questions were being asked? 
What was the situation that was going on that prompted the writing of a letter like this? And what we tend to do is open it up sort of blind and we're reading somebody else's mail and we wonder why it's not profoundly impacting our lives. And so I thought about, you know, how do I just dive into Ephesians chapter 1? And I thought it would be stupid to dive into Ephesians chapter 1. So, so for weeks now, we've been advertising that we're going to start this series on Ephesians today. And, and we are, except I want you to know something. What we just did in Ephesians 1, when I read that to you, when you were standing up, that's all we're doing in Ephesians today. We're not even going to open the book of Ephesians again. We're instead going to see what we can do to, to help you to understand the backstory. We're going to try to give you the foundation for what's going on. Because, and, and, and I'm going to do this also, and some of you will have to forgive me because I might say some things today that you're like, well, duh, doesn't everybody know that? No, not everybody knows that. And there are some things that I just skip over so easily and mention people and don't tell you who they are or talk about a place and don't tell you where it is. And, and I just sort of take for granted, well, we must all know, but we don't all know. And so what I want to do today is I want to give us a real picture because, because the book of Ephesians is not a book. It's a letter. And it was written by someone. And it was written to someone. And it was written at a time. And it had a context and a significance. And so you may be thinking, yeah, we're going to have this series on Ephesians, but what is an Ephesian anyway, and should I care? And, and what do I have in common with these Ephesians? And so let me just answer question number one. An Ephesian is a person who lives in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is an ancient city, and you're thinking, well, okay, where's Ephesus, and why do I care about this? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I brought a map, Okay. This hopefully will be helpful to us because we're going to be talking about this for a long time. This is a map of what we think vaguely was Paul's second major missionary journey. And so you see down here in the bottom right, you see Jerusalem, right? So, so this is the area in which he starts and he heads up to Antioch and around to Tarsus, which is, which is his sort of home ground. And then he heads over across this area of Galatia. If you look above, it's just that whole area is called Asia. This is an ancient map. That area was known then as Asia. And, and basically, he goes across the uh, Aegean Sea over to Neapolis in this city called Philippi. Have you ever heard of that city? That's where we get the book of Philippians, right? And then he goes down from Philippi to Amphipolis and Apollonia and Thessalonica, where we get First and Second Thessalonians. And then he comes down to Berea. We don't have a book of Bereans, but the Bereans are mentioned. And Paul commends them to us. And he says, we're supposed to be like them. What is it we're supposed to be like them in? That even when an apostle or a prophet came and taught them something new, they always measured it against the word of God to see if it was truth. And Paul said that that is the standard we should all follow. Doesn't matter who the speaker is, who the writer is, who the pastor is, who's teaching us something from this book. If it doesn't match what the book teaches, then he's wrong and the book is right. All God's people said? Amen, right? So the Bereans are our example for that. He comes down from Berea to a place called Athens, where he goes to the, a place called the Areopagus, which is where all the philosophers gather together all day just to debate philosophy. And he debates the great Greek philosophers of that day. And um, he points out to them that they have all these statues to all of these gods because they're pagans and they have multiple gods. And just in case they miss one, they have a statue and the inscription on the statue says, to the unknown God. And even the Greek people, the philosophers know that there is a God that they don't know yet. And Paul says, you're interested in gods. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. And he introduces them to Jesus at the Areopagus there in Athens. They go down to a place called Corinth where we get first and second Corinthians, right? And also Corinthian leather for your car. Remember that? You got to be at least 40 to remember that. Okay. Um, we, he goes down to Corinth. Now, let me tell you about Corinth. We're not going to talk about Corinth anymore except this. Corinth is the Las Vegas of its day. Okay. Corinth is the place where what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Okay. People go to Corinth to get their party on. That's the deal. Okay. And so every kind of debauchery that you can imagine takes place in Corinth. Corinth, Corinth celebrates um, sexual immorality as a good thing. And so it's just this wild, crazy place in Corinth. And when Paul gets there, 
It's just this out-of-control culture, and yet the gospel begins to transform it so that the Corinthian church is born and grows and begins to change the world. And when he leaves Corinth, he goes across the uh, water to a place called Ephesus. You see the round circle? That's where we're landing, okay? He goes to Ephesus. Now, you say, why even go to Ephesus? What's the big deal about Ephesus? Uh, Why would anybody go there? It is one of the most important port cities in the world at that time. It is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and this is what it looks like today. Now, do you know why people go there? It looks like Malibu, right? And so, do you notice what's there in the middle of the picture? A a cruise ship. It looks like what? Alcatraz, yeah. That could be Alcatraz. But do you see the uh, cruise ship there? It's uh, you, if you Google pictures of modern-day uh, Ephesus, you will find almost every picture of this port has cruise ships in it because it's constantly cruise ships going in and out. There are always tourists there, and it's an amazing place to go and, and to view what they have there. And basically, in addition to the modern city and all that it has to offer, they also have the ruins of the ancient city that you can go and visit. And among those ruins is this place, which is the Temple of Artemis, okay? also known as the Temple of Diana. So the same goddess, Artemis, Diana, same goddess. And this is not an actual photograph of that temple. This is the artist's rendering of what the temple looked like before it was destroyed, okay? Now, this temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a spectacular place, and even if you go just to see the ruins, it will blow your mind. But this temple is incredible. It's an architectural wonder. There are 117 columns in the Temple of Artemis. Some of them are around the outside, and some of them are on the inside. Every one of the columns is 60 feet tall and weighs 30,000 pounds. Now, picture that. We had some guys this week in here because we're remodeling the uh, children's ministry department. Um, And so a bunch of guys in our church who have skills to do that kind of stuff, we're here working their tails off this week, and they'll be back doing more next week, and praise God for that. But as I bumped into several of them today because they've been working on the ceiling, and as I bumped into them today, they don't lift their hands very well to shake hands. (laughs) You know, just, just the shoulder pain just from working above your head all that time. Now, picture if you were putting up 30,000-pound columns. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have any modern technology or machinery to do this with. That's why it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a spectacular place. And if you, if you were able to go in there and you could go to the inside where the altar is, that you'd find this altar, and above this altar, behind it, you would find the, the statue of the goddess Diana. And it's this giant statue and basically, she's standing with her feet together, and her legs are kind of wrapped almost like a mummy or like a really tight dress that goes all the way to her feet, and there are symbols all over that. And then she's bare from the waist up, and she's covered on her front with breasts, just breasts, 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 breasts everywhere. And I was going to show you a picture of that, and I thought, no. So um, just picture this. She's covered with breasts. Why is she covered with breasts? Because she's a goddess of fertility, Right? She's a symbol of fertility, and so um, she's the most important goddess among these pagans who have any number of gods, right? And, and the gods that are the ones that are the most revered are the ones they believe have the most power. And of course, it's an agrarian culture. They need crops. They need babies to be born. They need all of this so that they can survive. So fertility is really important. So you can go you could do this today, but you could also do it then. If you go to visit the ruins today, there are, there are tables there where they will sell you little statues of Diana. And in those days, they would sell you statues of Diana as well. And you would take them home and you would bury them in a field where you were about to plant crops. Or you would, you would put them uh, under a bed where you were hoping children were to be conceived. And you would do all that kind of stuff because it was, she was the goddess of fertility and she mattered more to them than anyone else. So they built this great temple to her. So she's the goddess of fertility. If you left there and you said, I want to see some more, you would, you would come to this place, which is pretty spectacular too. This is the ancient theater of Ephesus. Now, it's an amphitheater, and it's built into this natural amphitheater in the hillside. And probably the closest, what does this remind you of that's near here? 
It's the Hollywood Bowl, right? It's just like the Hollywood Bowl, okay? But let me give you an idea. The Hollywood Bowl seats 17,000 people. This seats 24,000 people. This thing is massive. Now, what do you see down in the bottom, the little circle, those little dots? Those are people, okay? And so picture this. You would go to see a play, a, a Greek play, uh, um, and they would have the big masks, you know, because if you're sitting way up at the top, they didn't have like a jumbotron for you to watch this on, right? And so they had these big masks, and yet the acoustics were so good that without obviously any microphones or electricity in those days, they were able to project through the mask all the way out to these back rows of these people sitting so far away. And so it too is an architectural wonder, and it's this astonishing thing. Um, this place, Ephesus, was the place. This was the place that, you know, Rome hoped that outsiders would come to and they could say, look, this is the Roman Empire. This is why you want to be a part of this. This is the greatest place you'll ever be. There was about three to 500,000 people in this city at Paul's time, and it was a big deal, and the Romans showed it off. Now, in addition to all these places that you could see, the culture in Ephesus was really kind of amazing because, as I said, they were pagan. And when you hear the word pagan, I don't know if you, if you understand what I mean by that exactly, so let me define it. Basically, paganism uh, worships that which they find in nature, okay? So to a pagan, there's a god of um, rain, there's a god of the sun, there's a god of the river, there's a god of the squirrels, and, and so they worship all of these things that they find in nature. And there's a reason that they do that before you, before you just go, oh my gosh, what a bunch of dumb people. Listen, there's a reason they do that, and here's the reason. Man is incurably religious. In every culture, in every place, and every time, mankind worships. And the reason that mankind worships, the Bible tells us that God made us in his image with a knowledge of him to have a relationship with him. And so from the moment man is able to put thoughts together, he begins seeking something or someone to worship. And absent from the knowledge of the true God, people will worship anything. Do we not see that in our society today? So, so let's not think these pagans are so goofy and so backwards. They're just like us. We just worship things like BMWs and corner offices. And they worship things like rocks and trees and squirrels. And so they would worship things that were in, in nature. But, but in Ephesus, Ephesus was kind of the religious center of the Roman Empire at that time. And so paganism flourished there, and they had not just the Temple of Diana, but all of these other temples to these other gods and goddesses that they would invite people to come and worship. And, and one of their biggest things was what was called um, the dark arts or black magic, where they had literally sorcerers. You know, you see in the old stories about Merlin and guys like that. These cities had people like that. And in fact, there were lots and lots of those people in Ephesus. And basically, they would cast spells. They would put curses on people. They would do all of that kind of stuff. And you go, my gosh, do people really believe in that kind of stuff? Again, we believe in it here. Like there, the, the things that we chalk up to luck and destiny and all that kind of stuff, it's not very much different. But I'll tell you, I've spent a decent amount of time now in different third world countries and multiple continents of the world. And I have found that in cultures that are still steeped in paganism, you will find that this is still not only um, there, but common and respected. And so, um, you know, when I've been in, I was in Uganda one time, and we had, to, we had to stop. We were trying to go somewhere in traffic, and we had to stop because there was this procession. It was, it was like an informal parade, and it was coming down the street, and it was growing. There was, there was this person out front who was a witch doctor, and, and it really was like, if you've never been in a place like this or seen something like this, it really was, um, it was you know, there's a huge headdress and a mask and makeup, and they're beating a drum, and all this is going on, and they're dancing through the street, and there's this religious ceremony going on with this witch doctor, and the witch doctors in these areas, they hold power over the people, because let's say you hate somebody, and you want them to be cursed. You go to the witch doctor, and you say, look, here's a hundred bucks. I want you to curse my mother-in-law, right? 
And um, some of you may already, your mother-in-law may have been cursed, and that explains a lot. Now you understand. But you say, here's 100 bucks. I want you to curse this person, right? And so they, they take the 100 bucks, and they curse the person. And now the person knows that they've been cursed, and there is a psychological effect to something like that. And you start reading things the wrong way, and people believe this stuff. And so the witch doctors who have the most success with their incantations and spells become the most powerful, they make the most money, and they control the people. So it's a, it's a powerful reality, not just in certain parts of the world, but everywhere. Paganism is rampant, and it takes different forms here than it might take somewhere else, but it's still paganism. If you are worshiping something that's not God, that's paganism. And so it was this city of Ephesus is the religious center of all this. There are magicians. There are, um, there are craftsmen whose whole job it is to craft idols that they sell to you. There are, um, there are all kinds of... Um, priests and all kinds of astrologers and all kinds of curses and all kinds of magic spells. And this is, this is sort of the center of all of that. So when you hear about a city like this and you think, why in the world does Paul even want to go there? And, and why in the world does he want to write a letter to these people? What can he possibly have in common with these pagan people? And so again, good question. I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at that. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. As we begin our study, the book of Ephesians and the book of Acts, I want you to go to Acts chapter 19 and just put your finger there because we're going to start there and we're going to get the background of how this Ephesian thing began. But if we're going to do that, then we shouldn't take anything for granted. And I want to take a minute or two and give you this story because the letter of the Ephesians is written to the Ephesian Christians and it's written by a guy by the name of what? Paul. The great apostle Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, right? Well, Paul wasn't always Paul. Some of you may know this story and some of you may not, so let me just give it to you quickly. Um, Paul was originally Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was, um, a, was raised to be a rabbi, and he became a rabbi, and he studied in Jerusalem under the great chief priests. And he even became a chief priest, one of the Pharisees. And he was there during the time of Jesus and during the time right after the resurrection of Jesus. And he was there, in fact, if you look in the beginning of the book of Acts, when Stephen stands up to give his testimony and the church is just being born and Stephen gets stoned to death, Paul is a part of that group that is stoning Stephen to death. I said Paul, I should say Saul because his name doesn't get changed until later. And so he's, he's Saul, and he's there, and basically today, if we were to describe Saul in simplest terms, we would say this, he's a religious fanatic terrorist. That's what he is. He's a guy who is so passionate about his religious beliefs that not only does he hold them dear, but he hates other religious beliefs. And so the thing with Jesus that got him crucified is that he kept claiming to be God. And to the Jew, that is the worst thing you could possibly say. It's utter blasphemy to claim to be God. And so the, the Jews hated Jesus, and that's why he went to the cross. I mean, we know he had his own plan, but that's why they thought he went to the cross. And, and then after the resurrection, the church began to explode. Boy, the Pharisees became really scared and really nervous about losing their own power and about this whole new religious upheaval, which to them, you have to understand, is a cult. They're looking at this going, my gosh, they're worshiping a man who says he's God. And so they're upset about this. And so what they do is they say to Saul, who is the most zealous among them, they say, listen, we're going to send you out and you're going to go from city to city and you're going to root these people out. And wherever you find these people, these followers of Jesus, they're called the way. They used to call the church in those days the way because Jesus said, I am the way, right? There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. So before they were called Christians, before they were called the church, they were called the way. And they said, we want you to look for anyone who's in the way, and we want you to get them out of the way. And that's exactly what he did. And he would go from place to place. He would either chain them up and drag them back to stand trial, or he would kill them where they were. And he had the power to do that and the legal authority to do that. And so that's who he was. Today, if he was, a, if he was a Muslim, we would call him a jihadist. That's just exactly what he was, only he was Jewish, okay? So that's Saul. 
And one day, on his journey to go kill some other Christians in a place called Damascus, he's going along with just a few people with him, and all of a sudden, there's a light that is so bright, it blinds him, and a noise that is so loud, it knocks him down, and he finds himself blind and on the ground, and out of this light comes the voice of God, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he basically calls him to become a follower of Jesus, and not only a follower, but an apostle. And he says to him, I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake. And you go, oh, man, he punished him, I guess, for all of that bad stuff he didn't know. Paul didn't call it suffering. He didn't call it punishment. He called it a privilege. He called it an honor to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And he became the great apostle Paul who wrote, you know, half of our New Testament. And, and that's this, this terrorist. So, you know what? I don't know who you're praying for these days who's so far from God and they don't want to listen and they don't want to do any of the things that you're saying. But listen, God can change any heart. And through Saul, who became Paul, he didn't just change the heart, he changed the world. So you keep praying. So let's look at the history of the Ephesian church um, and Paul's involvement with him. Back to Acts chapter 19, okay? Let's pick it up in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so let me get, get you up to speed who these people are. When he gets to Ephesus, he does what he always does. If there's enough Jews in the city to have a synagogue, he goes to where the synagogue is. And there's a handful of Jews in Ephesus. And among them, he finds some guys who actually say they believe in Jesus. And he's like, wow, that's awesome. So when you were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And verse 3, and they said, um, they said oh, we don't even know what you're talking about. Verse 3, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Speaking of John the Baptist, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So God had already been doing this work in their lives, but they didn't know the whole story. And so they came to trust in Jesus as their Lord, and they were baptized in his name. Uh, now, verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. So because he's a Pharisee, because he's a rabbi, when he comes to a synagogue, they invite him to speak. It would be like if, if some uh, well-known pastor walked in on a Sunday morning, and I said, oh my gosh, you know, why in the world would you listen to me when Chuck Swindoll came and we would bring him up here and we let him preach, right? That's what they did with Paul. And they let him preach every Sabbath for some period of time, right? Three months. And it says that he's reasoning from the Old Testament and explaining to them who the Messiah is. And people are interested. But it gets to the point where it comes to a um, head and there's a sharp division. Verse 9 but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, this may seem like just a little point, but I'm going to make it anyway. This guy, Tyrannus, have you ever heard of him? Do you ever seen anything about him anywhere else? No. Uh, his name means tyrant. Now, um, that's not the kind of name you give your child at birth, right? You, you, you know, your, your child is born, you're not going to name him murderer, right? That would be a lousy name. So they named him Tyrant. Well, no, almost certainly he wasn't named that by his parents. He earned that name somehow. And he is known as a tyrant. Apparently, he is some sort of a political leader in the area. Uh, maybe he was a tyrant. Maybe it was his father that was a tyrant and he was named after him. We don't know. But, but after listening to Paul, something happened in the heart of this tyrant. And he said, you know what? I'm going to help you out. They won't let you preach in the synagogue anymore. Don't worry about that because I'm the man in this town and I have the keys to the lecture hall. And, and in this 
part of Rome, what they would do is in the mornings, the, the teachers and philosophers of the city would gather and the students would gather in the lecture hall and they would, they would do philosophy. And then they would take the afternoon off and they'd come back at night and they would have more classes. And he basically said, look, you know, it's open in the afternoon. You can have it. And he gave him the keys to the lecture hall. And Paul started going down to this lecture hall called the School of Tyrannus. And um, look what it says in verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So every day for two years, he gets to teach the word of God to the Ephesian people. Now, if you've paid any attention to the book of Acts or followed Paul's life at all, you know that this is not typical. What normally happens for Paul is he comes into a town, he, he preaches the gospel, and everybody throws stuff at him, and they chase him out of town. And he's usually there somewhere between an hour and a week. And, and then he's gone. And somehow God waters what he plants there and great things happen. But here he is in Ephesus for the better part of three years. And for two years, every day, he is teaching the word of God and getting the gospel out. And you go, wow, I wonder if it was making a difference. Look what it says in verse 10. So that all who lived in Asia, can you bring that map back up, Alex? All who lived in Asia, that's that whole big area, right? heard the word of the Lord. Now, this is amazing. How does this happen? It doesn't say anything about him going anywhere else, but all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. How does this happen? It's a port city. People come into Ephesus on their way to somewhere else, and as they come in and people greet the visitors, they say, listen, welcome to Ephesus. Thanks for visiting. There's three things you got to do. You got to go to the temple. It's, it's amazing. It's just an incredible architectural wonder. And if you're a worshiper of Diana, you got to go to the temple. You can buy an idol there that you could take back to your land. The second thing you got to do is go to the theater and catch a concert, catch a play. I think the Rolling Stones are touring at that time there. You could go um, do that. And then the third thing is go to the lecture hall and check out this guy who says he knows the meaning of life. And you know what? He makes sense. Go check that out. And so they would do that, and then off they would go back to their land, hearing the gospel and bringing it back to their hometowns so that all of Asia got to hear the gospel during the two and a half years that Paul found himself in Ephesus. And by the way, Paul wasn't just talking. There were also amazing things that were taking place through Paul. Now, I'm, I'm about to read you something, and I'm going to just tell you right up front, I can't explain it. So when you come up to me after the service and say, hey, I don't understand. Can you explain that? The answer will be, no, I told you, I can't explain that. Ask Ricky, right? We, the whole reason Ricky is on staff is to answer the questions I can't answer. So if you have questions, I will send you to him. But before we get there, let me just read you this crazy passage. Verse 11, we're still in Acts 19. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Say what? It says they, they could just take a handkerchief that he touched, take it to a sick person, and the sick person would get healed. Now that's bananas, right? That is crazy. Now, word for handkerchief, it probably means something more like, um, like a headband or some kind of a sweat band. So basically, he's a tent maker. He's working hard during the day. He's covered in sweat. They come to him. They're like, hey, there's this lady across town. She's near death. We need you to come and pray for her. And he'd be like, look, I can't. I got stuff. I got commitments. I can't do it. Here, I'll tell you what. Take this and just go give that to her and pray for her. And that lady would get healed. And the word would get back that even something that he touched could lead to the healing of people who are sick and dying and could lead to the casting out of demons. Even demons couldn't resist his apron. What? That's nuts, right? Now, I want you to notice something in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You should circle, underline, highlight that word extraordinary or unusual, it may say in your Bible. This is not ordinary. This is extraordinary. And, and sometimes we make this mistake. We look at things in Scripture and we're like, look, it happened in the Bible. It must be happening today. Not everything that happened in the Bible is happening today. And even at this time, it was extraordinary. 
And we're going to try to understand it as best we can. And if we need to get Ricky up here, we'll ask him to explain it. But, but I'm going to try to give you some basic understanding of this. Um, because you, think of it today. You have seen these guys on TV, right? Their fancy suits and their big hair. I hate guys with big hair. And... They, and <laughs> And, um, and they're, they're preaching this. They got a Bible in their hand, right? But they're preaching about these things that they have the power to do. And therefore, if you will sign up for their newsletter or send them a check to their ministry or, or maybe even uh, write a letter with $100 in it, and I'll send you back an anointed prayer cloth that you can be touching while you pray. And I touched it before I sent it, and it has power and all that kind of stuff. So where did those guys get this stuff? And by the way, people fall for this every day. Where did those guys get that idea? Right here. They just go, see, look, it's biblical. Listen, we have to understand things in their context. It says right here, it's extraordinary. This is the Apostle Paul. This is not some dude who has his own TV show on Sunday afternoons on some cable channel. This is the Apostle Paul, and even for him, this is extraordinary. But this is what people do. People often will try to build their own kingdoms using the name of God and try to make money and try to make fame and try to have power because of that, right? So, um, and I'm not saying that every pastor that's on TV is, is a bad guy. There's a lot of great preaching on television. I'm not saying that. I am just saying, beware of these guys who are saying, listen, I can send you special oil that will heal you. I can send you a special handkerchief that will heal you. Um, because even here, it's extraordinary. But even today, people try to take advantage by copying it, right? That's exactly what happened when Paul was there, okay? So remember I said there's all these magicians and conjurers and astrologers and all these people all over Ephesus, right? And they're going to get in on this because it's all about power. And if you can show that you have power, people will follow you. So why would God do something so confusing as this in Ephesus? Well, it's the center of the magic arts. Everybody is competing for power. My God has more power than your God. And in essence, I'd say, God seems to be saying, you want to know about power? Watch this. Explain this apart from me. Let me show you my power. And God is exhibiting his power in this setting. And suddenly, everybody is interested in the message that Paul is speaking. People who were blowing him off before as some sort of crazy guy now want to know exactly what he has to say because his message is being backed up by power. And people are drawn to that power. And they're thinking, until now, we didn't know if this guy was real. But now, how can we argue with these extraordinary circumstances that we're seeing? And so the people are flocking to Paul. And just like today's opportunistic preachers try to copy what was going on for their own benefit, these guys are trying to copy it. And this is hysterical. I love this story. But pick it up in verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, these are itinerant preachers, right? These are snake oil salesmen. They get into the town, they, they sell their deal, and just around the time people are starting to figure out that it's all a lie, they get off to the next town, okay? These are guys who go from place to place, and so they're called Jewish exorcists. They went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Don't you love that? These guys come in, and they're like, listen, we've been watching. Here's what Paul does. He just calls in the name of Jesus. There must be some power in this name of Jesus. So, so we can do that. If he can do it, we can do it. If he can use a handkerchief, we could use a handkerchief, right? So... So they go off and they say, this guy is, in, is uh, indwelt by a demon. And these seven brothers come up and they're like, listen, you know, for a thousand bucks, we could take care of this. Okay, he scratches the check and they say, okay, listen, demon, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I adjure you to come out. And the demon basically laughs at him and says, listen, I know Jesus. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> you remember that debate? where, the, where uh, Lloyd Benson said, listen, 
I, I knew Jack Kennedy, and you, sir, are no Jack Kennedy. Do you remember that? That's, that's exactly what the demons are saying to these guys. Listen, I know Jesus, and you ain't him. And I even know about Paul, and you ain't him either. Who do you think you are? And look what happens. This is so hysterical. I love this. Um, it's very rare that it makes me happy when demons win, but watch this. Um, so verse 16, uh, or verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You remember this from second grade Sunday school, right? You remember that flannel graph with the naked guys going across? You remember this story, right? So... These guys, literally seven grown men running, screaming from this place where this demon just kicked their tail, and they're naked running through the town. Do you think the word got out about this? Everybody's talking about it, right? So pick it up at verse um, 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Guys, don't miss this. Here we have men who are trying to build their own kingdoms, make it about themselves, take advantage of people. Here we have demons who are torturing people and whose name gets magnified? Jesus. There is one name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a fact. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. So look what God is doing in Ephesus. While all of this turmoil is taking place, while men are trying to do their own thing, while demons are trying to infiltrate infiltrate these people and ruin their lives, what is God doing? He is magnifying the name of Jesus. And guys, when the name of Jesus is magnified, amazing things happen. It was true then, and it's true now. The name of Jesus is the name above every name. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found that it was 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the Lord was growing mightily, and prevailing. Full-scale revival broke out in Ephesus. There were some people, it says, who had already believed in some sense. Maybe they were like those ones who had John's baptism, but they didn't really know about Jesus and hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. I don't know, but what happened was as God began to, to magnify himself, as he began to lift up the name of Jesus, and it became no longer uh, debatable who was the mighty God, as people began to see this, they began to turn to Jesus in a powerful way. It doesn't say that they went down and joined the church. It doesn't say that they, um, they prayed a, a prayer and signed a membership role and then decided to put a bumper sticker on the back of their chariot. It doesn't say that. You know what it says? It says that they went home and began to empty their houses of everything that represented their former life of paganism. And they said, there will be one God in my life. These are magicians who make their living selling lies to people. And they go and get their books of curses and incantations. And they start a bonfire in the city square. And they all throw it in. And depending on which person, which commentator you read, it's somewhere between probably $25,000 and $100,000 in today's money worth of books that burned that day as people said, my old life is over. I am defined by my relationship with Jesus from this point on. And the name of Jesus was magnified. My friends, where the name of Jesus is magnified, amazing things happen. Now, before we wrap it up, I feel like I want to ask you a question. With all that we just saw in Acts 19 about the name of Jesus being magnified and all that we saw in Acts 19 about people misusing the name of Jesus for their own glory and their own sake, I just want to get right right up in your face and make you uncomfortable and ask you a question. 
what are you doing with the name of Jesus? If you are a bearer of this name, what do people see in you that evidences that you're really a follower of Christ? Does your faith seem to be more about you than it really is about him? Is it about us and I have some prayers I need to get answered and I have some comfort that I want to have and I need God to do me a favor? Has God become kind of a genie in a bottle for you where you rub the lamp and he comes out and says, what can I do for you? And you tell him what to do. Are you tempted to play those kind of games with Jesus? Take from him whatever you can get to advance your own agenda as opposed to laying down your life on the altar for him. It's easy to do. And let me ask you this. What kind of stuff, if you're really going to be an all-in follower of Jesus, what kind of stuff do you need to go home and get rid of? What kind of stuff in your heart do you need to get rid of? For some of us, it's bitterness. Some of us are just angry because we've been hurt and we're carrying hold of this bitterness and we will not forgive, we will not forgive, we will not forget. There is no way we're going to let that person off the hook and we are just churning and boiling and burning inside with bitterness and it's ruining our lives and we refuse to let it go. And Jesus says, listen, I can't be Lord of your life while unforgiveness and bitterness is the Lord of your life. What do you need to let go of? Maybe, what, what is it in your life that, that is like a, these magic books? That you say, okay, I've been, I've been playing with this, and, but now I know the truth, and, and this counterfeit has no place in my life. Maybe there's some files on your computer that need to go away. Maybe your whole computer needs to go away. Maybe, maybe there's some relationship that you're in that needs to either radically change or cease to exist because you know that it's not about glorifying God and it's pulling you away from the Lord and it it has no place in your life. Here's what I'm saying. We're going to get into the book of Ephesus and we're going to start seeing God say some things to us that are going to pull us up short and make us exceptionally uncomfortable because he's serious. He expects us to walk with him. See, he's just, just sort of Simple enough to think that his name should be glorified above everything else. And he's going to find a way to make that happen in our lives. And so he's not asking for a place in your life. He's not asking for a seat at your table. He is asking to become your life. That's what Jesus wants to do. So do you have any idols that you need to get rid of? You got any magic books that need to get thrown in the fire? I'm not talking about, I can't even tell you. I'm not going to say, okay, so don't go watch these movies and don't watch this TV show and get rid of this music and stop going with this. I can't tell you any of those things. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. I trust him to talk to you. But what I'm not so good on is trusting you to listen to him. And so that's why I'm up here making you uncomfortable. Because guys, while we hold on to these stupid things that we hold so dear... They suck the life out of us, and we miss out on the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. That's just dumb. And so I ask you, what do you need to say goodbye to in order to be all in for Jesus? Because you show me a person who's all in for Jesus. You show me a church that's all in for Jesus. I will show you a person. I will show you a church that God is using to change the world. And all, you know, we talk about this all the time. Love God. Love people. Change the world. That change the world part is not optional. This is what happens when the name of God is magnified. All of Asia hears the gospel. When the name of God is glorified in my life, when Jesus becomes the central figure of everything that matters to me, on those days, the world gets transformed. And that's what I want my life to be about. I don't know about you. That was the church of Ephesus. And that's the church that God wants us to be. And he'll do it. He'll do it in us. The question is, am I really serious or am I playing games with the name of Jesus? And so I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads before I ask you to stand so I can pray over you. I just want to give you a minute to talk with God. This is between you and God. It's private. It's silent. But as your eyes are closed, I just want you to think about something. If Jesus were to grab you by the hand and say, I want to take a walk through your life, 
And I'm going to point out some things that need to go. Probably a lot of them, you already know what they are. Maybe today's the day for you to say, all right, God, I'm all yours, even this area that has always been about me. Why not just take a minute and talk to God about those things and ask him to search your heart and show you what idols are standing in the way between you and him. last thing as you continue to pray. Jesus is not asking you to make a new commitment. He's asking you to surrender. I say, it's no longer about me. It's not about my plan, my agenda. It's not about what I could do for you, Lord. It's about you shining through me. Um, some of us right now just need to take our hands off the wheel and surrender. And if that's you, just share that with the Lord. Father, as we humble ourselves before you and, and ask you to search our hearts. Lord, some of us have been holding on to fears and insecurities that have no place in the life of a Christian. Forgive us. May you be our rock and our salvation from this day forward. And some of us are holding on to relationships that we know you do not want to be prominent in our lives and it's just so terrifying to give them up. We want you to be Lord. We want to be all in for you. Some of us have habits that we know dishonor you and shame, bring shame to your name. And we're just so comfortable with them and they need to go. Father, help us today to be people who are truly surrendered to you. And then do through us what you did through the Ephesians. Change the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.